a lot of holistic healing. Mm-hmm. I've started to clear my kind of what I feel is was negative mindset, and I've started to set clear intentions. And I do believe in um, gifts from the universe. I do, you yeah. know. And this particular opportunity I was given recently with UCL, with UCL, yeah. yeah I put out to the universe that I wanted to explore the the story of the Cockney because I was a Cockney myself and mm-hmm. Cockney Cockneys by their very nature are real storytellers and yeah. I grew up immersed in language and I often refer to my tongue as my paintbrush because you know I, I didn't I didn't find reading easy at all growing up as a kid but speaking I did mm-hmm. and the East End was rich with language and language was art and to me I was immersed in art That's people amazing. art right yeah. so I want to explore that and I had put that out a lot to the mm-hmm. universe and then I got um I, I applied for this public arts funding mm-hmm. thing I saw in East London but I, and I put a proposal forward, went along to this like meet and greet where there was researchers there but I didn't get through to the second round but I did meet an art curator that, at this event that said, you'd be great for this project about East London I'm mm. going to put you in touch with this other woman. So I linked up with this woman and lo and behold, they're doing this project called The Voices of East Bank and it's all to do with the voices of the four neighbouring boroughs um, around the East End um, and, like, the new part of Stratford that's obviously seen a change in Newham. Yeah. And they wanted me to draw on some of my journalistic skill and poetry skills and go in and interview people that live within certain parts of East London yeah. about their story. And it was all for, it's for a thing called Newham Archive where it's going to be available from Stratford Library. BBC, BBC History are going to use some of it. Amazing. And um, UCL wanted to do it. And I ended up meeting with these people. We, we put loads of ideas into the pot. We co-created and they offered to get get me on board and I've been one of their main f- workshop facilitators, paid work, you know, and we've ended up going in with similar equipment to this. Yeah interviewing people just about their stories you know and it's really reconnected me with the reason why I first became a journalist because growing up in the East End I always I had an old soul and I always noticed people that had a lot of humility but had hardship and to me there was a lot of stories in people of the everyday you know and I would walk around and I'd see people struggling but they held their head up so high or they had really clean homes or they still were really proud yeah and they they were just you know they they were just rich with story and they mm. but they didn't see themselves as a story. They didn't value the stories they carried, and that led me into journalism. So I could sh- local journalism in Tower Hamlets, and I worked predominantly for a newspaper that covered Tower Hamlets. And I used to do a lot of features articles, and they were my favourites. Where I'd interview people about, you know, maybe they run the marathon with only one leg or perhaps there was like five generations of yeah. family that got cancer and they all survived and whatever it was you know and then it would you would tell their story of defying the odds yeah and shining a light on that for me was huge and at the time I wasn't ready to look at my own story so shining a light on theirs was safe safe mm-hmm. projection mm-hmm. but through shining a light on all these stories of hardship I was able to see that my own story had been really hard and when I was ready to look at it, I eventually did. So that kind of idea that the East End is rich with story and rich with Cockneys and Cockneys, the diaspora there is so rich, like the history is so rich. Yeah, and yeah. I'd love to 
do a project just about Cockney. And um, so I've, the project manager that I've been working with has said to me, you know what, we'll we'll look into it as an idea. And if you need help and you, there's a way to find funding, I'll, I'll put you, so point great. you in the right direction. Yeah. Watch this space. Yeah. There may be a Cockney, Cockney <laughs> project from, you know, Cockney, Curly Wordy, but... Um, I'd like to do it. It would have meaning for me. Yeah. Um, and so what you're back to what you're saying, because I've gone around the houses, because us, co- <laughs> us Cockneys we do, yeah. but um, the, the idea of the common Londoner has mm. gone, I think. And yeah. so when people talk about Cockneys dying, which is a topical debate at the minute, to be a Cockney is a spirit, is a way of life. Mm. So therefore, if you go to Tower Hamlets and you go into a sh- shop and you chat to a, a Bangladeshi shopkeeper and he tells you that he was born there and he's got a Cockney accent, or he hasn't got a very Cockney accent, but he was born there, sound of the bow bells, he's a Cockney. You know, yeah. so it's not it's not that it's a type of person. Yeah. It's not um a, a race. It's, it's, it's a spirit being yeah. Cockney, and it's if you're born within the sound of a certain area. But the idea of the common Londoner, I uh, think, which was often associated with Cockney, yeah. is on the decline, you yeah, know, and yeah. I would, I really do want to look at it, you know, and if there's anyone out there that wants to look at it with me, <laughs> come on down, we could do it together, you know, but no, I, um, yeah, I'd yeah. like to. But it's kind of what we were, just before the podcast started, what we were saying about, like, how growing up in London gives you a certain, like, rhythm or, like, attitude or drive to life that I think you don't get in other places. And for me, someone who's moved to London can really feel the difference from where I've come from Mm. in terms of the pace of it. Yeah. yeah. I think London is, like... My early memories of London, East London, growing up in Bow, were beautiful memories of freedom, Mm. you know, and playing out on my bike... But my BMX, you know, and it held it held such high currency that BMX. <laughs> but, you know, it was the one thing. And for all, you know, um, when I think about my parents' marriage and how it wasn't very good, and there were many things my father struggled with. But one thing my dad was great at, like if my bike ever got nicked or my like rollerblades or my roller skates got ever got nicked, he'd replace them instantly. He knew I loved. Yeah. He knew I had this um, need to be very out, yeah, yeah out and be playing out a lot. And um, I would be out for hours and hours and uh, people would knock for me and we'd go cycling. I've got very vivid memories of often cycling alone and just that feeling of freedom, mm. cycling out in the rain. Like my my favourite memories are when you'd just get a downpour and it'd be pissing rain and I'd like I'd put one of those um, bubble gum, like, uh, you know, when you get like the lemon screwball yeah. from the ice cream van, you put <laughs> yeah. one in the back of your tyre and it would make a loud sound. No. Like, yeah, and I would just ride for hours yeah. and it would just be so thrilling. And, you know, when you think about personal geography mm. and you think about um, visual representations of belonging and how, you know, the going out in your community, understanding the demographics, understanding the geography of where you live, kids learn from a young age. And mm. when I look back, I was really, you know, even though there was things I wasn't strong and confident with, I was really confident with understanding my little estate and my little yeah. area of bow, you know, which I really believe set me up to have more confidence to venture out later on. Yeah. And go and explore a wider map. Yeah. You know, so beautiful memories of freedom, um, rich with um, people that just, the East End for me once was a place where people would go knowing they had an opportunity to make something of themselves. Mm-hmm. So if they had little, they could, you know, there was a lot of wheeler dealing that would go on, 
Like I've got a really vivid memory of my dad coming home once and my dad, there was a row in our living room and it was full of like leather Del Boy jackets. And we, <laughs> we, me and my sister were really young. Right? <laughs> we were like, what on earth is this? Like, you know, and, and, and people would like knock and go, hello, I'm just here to try on the fur coat. You know, whatever it was, right? And they'd come into our living room and they'd be trying on these leather jackets and, you know, and they'd buy them. And it was, there was a real, look, thinking about both my parents, there was a real hand-to-mouth existence, but there was a way of being entrepreneurial. Yeah. Having your, and there's a poem I've written called What's a Free Word Worth? And there's a line in it where I say, when, you've, when you ain't got money, you've got ideas. And I think when the East End was somewhere where people that. could go yeah. and you know, birth ideas yeah. and they would make money and yeah. they would survive. So their survival skills were phenomenal. Yeah. And I think survival is what powers drive. Mm-hmm. You know, um, knowing if you've got to, you've got no choice, you've got to find a way to survive. Yeah. It feeds your drive. And not taking anything away from people that don't have hardship or don't mm-hmm. have, or, or have maybe they're born into a bit of money, you know, good luck to them. It's, yeah. it's you know, it's it, it, life is life. But... I do think you can't buy a drive for that reason because it, some people who have really nothing yeah. will have like the most incredible entrepreneurial skills. Some people go on and achieve it, but you meet a lot of people that don't. Yeah. The opportunity is not there for yeah. them, and that's sad yeah. because it, it, it's just based on circumstance of mm. money. Yeah, you know, not ideas, not yeah. not um, not wealth. And when you was when you saw me at the Word Soul gig, you know, there's a line in my new piece. That I'm working on it's not finished yet but where I where I say um the budget you live on doesn't determine your brain's value or discipline you know and it doesn't no. you know and I, but I think that if you haven't got money um you're restricted you know and I've met a lot of people that you know could have been someone said to me that and it's really stayed with me that money buys you choice it does yeah yeah it buys yeah. you options it does yeah yeah so it's that's not that's one absolutely... of the lines from mummisms yeah, yeah that yeah. i've got where i say um my, where my mum used to say money it doesn't breed happiness it gives you choice and often those about it have to shout with a louder voice yeah and it's true you yeah. know and it does of course it gives you calm yeah it gives you clarity it gives, it you, gives you options yeah yep and it gives you the chance to say right i i'm not it gives you power it gives mm. you control you know, so it gives you a lot, but it, but often, but but often there can be this misunderstanding that perhaps poor people aren't happy. Yeah. You know, and I've been to places where people have nothing and they've got a really rich life. Yeah. You know, full sure. of the things that yeah. make them feel great. You yeah. know. So yeah, you're right. I mean, money is money's got a lot to answer for, is not mm, it? True. You know, it really has. But yeah, yeah, the East End. I'd always encourage anyone to go there. My stepdad. Um, gave me a great bit of advice, which was always, when you're in the East End, always look up because the buildings are beautiful, which mm. they are, and the buildings tell their own story. Wow. Um, and you will walk around and see such beauty just based on the kind of architecture yeah. of the East End. Yeah. And um, I think it's changed, and it's changing where big money's coming in, mm. big development's coming in. High-rise flats. High-rise flats, flats business, yeah, yeah, coming in. Like that new place, like the new part of Stratford's, I can understand why some people are frightened by change. It will be goodness. The, like to me, the East End was always seen as like the armpit of London, and I lived there, and to me it wasn't the armpit. It was right on the cuff of the city and it always deserved its glory, right? Yeah. It is getting its glory now, but of course there always is that danger then that certain it people will get people pushed out. out yeah, but yeah. it's the nature of the beast. Yeah. 
some of those people will be happy to go, mm. you know, because I've met people where they grew up in the East End, their family made good, and then they moved out to somewhere like Chigwell or, Wood, or yeah. Woodford, and then they lived there for a while, and then their family made even better, and they moved out to Kent or Essex or Surrey. And to them, that is progression yeah, out. Yeah. Not everyone wants to stay in inner city areas, yeah. you know, especially if you've been born into it and you yeah. haven't had or you've come there to make a better life for yourself and you haven't had the money and all of a sudden you do, yeah. people are then going to choose to live elsewhere. Mm. Um, so there will be some people that are happy to go yeah. as well. But, yeah, it's a great place, East London, and I think I'm always biased, but I think East Londoners are the most friendliest. I'd, I beckon any one of your listeners to say otherwise. <laughs> they remind me the most of northern people. <laughs> well, actually, I, I remember when I went to uni in Manchester, yeah. I got in a cab and I was a little bit... Um, Mary at the time, and this cab driver said to me, you can't be a like, southerner, you're so friendly. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You know, are you sure? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. yeah. You know, and um, I loved Manchester. I definitely felt like I belonged there. But, you know, I, I love a chatty person. Yeah. I love There's a person. There's plenty of that in the north. Yeah. Okay, so, Lou, <laughs> on a scale of shit to together, how are you feeling today? Oh, wow. God, you caught me at a good point in life. <laughs> I'd say I'm 50-50. 50-50. 50-50 on that. Why is that? Um, because I'm in a place at the moment where I've moved. I'm yeah, spending a bit recently, of time. Recently, recently, recent move Margate. to the seaside, Margate. Yeah, yeah old, old Margs. <laughs> and um, and what's nice about that? What drove that decision is um, I'd been a teacher for ten years, the last ten, the last decade, and I loved what teaching gave me. But I was I realised about six years in that I couldn't work in a classroom of 30 kids anymore and when I was really noticing that emotions, well-being and mental health were really desperately needing focus. Schools do their best and I was fortunate I worked at a school that did their utmost best to support the emotional development of kids but sometimes the funding isn't there but I struggled. Um, I've always had a soft spot for children who have social deprivation or so, and I don't even myself like the word deprivation because Tower Hamlets was often referred to it as that and I didn't see my area that I grew up like that. But you see children with emotional upset, emotional challenges, and I was that kid. You know, I came from that kind of family. I was very loved. But sometimes you can still have hardship Mm. and chaos that rocks your world as a child. So I really resonated with those kids because I was that kid once and maybe I could have benefited from early intervention therapy. And so it sent me off on a journey to retrain as something called a play therapist, which is a creative arts therapist. And I did a master's in it. And I've slowly been building up... um, working that and reducing mm. my days as a teacher and this July I finally handed my notice in as a teacher after yeah, 10 transition. years made the jump yeah jump jump into surrendering waters you know mm. and I realized I was in a pay trap and I had a I didn't I was you using my teaching career to pay for a mortgage you know and I was lucky yeah. to have a mortgage yeah but I'd only come to own property because my mother had died so really I'd Never had my, you know, if my mum was still alive, I'd be in rented accommodation now, you know, and I, but this situation presented itself and I did buy a flat, but the mortgage was huge Mm. and the interest rates were doubling and so I just had to get out of the trap of it, 
because I felt like the the chokehold of the of the financial burden was stopping me from having enough clearing space and space and clarity to really un- ask myself what it is that I wanted. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I've moved to Margate, and my mum was originally from Kent. So again, there's that link, yeah. Leytonstone, the East End, and all of a sudden I find myself being drawn to Kent. I used to go to Margate as a kid. I've still got some cousins that live in Kent, and it's been a big jump. But I'm renovating a property there, and it's I'm all I'm doing at the moment is I've got all different sorts of builders' numbers in my phone. I'm like, <laughs> who's Jimmy and who's Tom? <laughs> and who's Mark and who's oh my god, who's this fella? I mean, God, if someone checked my phone, they'd be like, bloody hell, you're keen. <laughs> so I mean, gentlemen callers. Gentlemen callers, yeah. You know, it says Mark the Sparky, and you know. <laughs> You know, and um, and then many plumbers, oi, oi, you know, and you just think, yeah, so I'm in this place where I'm trying to navigate a big decoration because yeah. I've got no hot water, no heating at the moment, oh you God. know, and I'm camping down on um, my floor on a sofa bed and it's all cool. But I'm trying to keep it buoyant so it continues. Yeah. So I'm hopefully within a month I'm living and I've got a decorated living room and I've got a sofa that I can sit on. So at the moment I'm sitting on camping chairs. Oh my god. <laughs> Humbling. I've got no kitchen. Yeah. Right. I'm using a camp a camping stove, wow. an air fryer and a kettle. Wow. I'm going to my mates for showers. Yeah. Um my armpit hairs are like <laughs> two and a half inches long. I've never I mean I should have done a growathon. So I should have done like a sponsorship so I could have donated the money to someone, right? <laughs> But, yeah, so that's what I mean by I know where I'm going. Yeah. I know within a couple of months I'll land, mm-hmm. I'll feel grounded. Mm-hmm. I really hope I can take my um, aspirations of, because, uh, you know, I, a, a lot of, some people that will listen to this will know I, I you know, I recently published a book on mm. bereavement in memory of my mum, and that's my first one. But I've got, a, I've got two, I've got one, another one that's finished, but... I'd like to do a second book for kids again. And there's another idea I've got to support ADHD. Again, another idea. But I'm someone through life, because of that drive and because of that early chaos, I can go into, like, hypo drive and hypo, like, um, overachieving. And that that is a trauma response. That is a trauma response to early chaos. And I... Could have a de- there could have been worse things, yeah. And I've been someone that's always been addicted to overachieving, mm-hmm. and there was points when I recognised it and then I could stop, yeah. So I looked at I looked at my life and realised that I w- I wasn't trapped, but I had to make changes, mm-hmm. and and it meant moving, and and it wasn't an easy decision leaving London because London's like a friend, an old friend to me, but I realised that I'd be able to, you know reduce my bills bills drastically have clarity and be able to breathe literally yeah. breathe better by the sea yeah you know have time to like write more um build my business in play therapy mm. uh, london will still be on my doorstep i can come in when i need to like i'm here now yeah you know and also i really want to try and write a spoken word play and like you know and i'm one of those people that about the East End, you know, and I'm one of those people that if I don't try, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll only get pissed off for myself. Yeah. And then there's no one else to get pissed off at. Yeah. So when you ask me if I've got my shit together, well, at the moment, <laughs> I've, I'm living out of laundry bags. Got, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, me ask for my tits some days. You know, <laughs> I don't know where my toothbrush is. You know, so that's the shit I haven't got to do <laughs> But it seems to be scale. flowing all right. Yeah. Right. So I know that I'll land okay. 
So what does having your shit together mean to you then? Having my shit together. In an ideal scenario that when I have had my shit Mm -hmm. together is lots of sleep, good rest, understanding that it's okay to nest down and rest and sleep well, eating well, good nutrition, really listening to what your body needs, staying hydrated. Um, I get obsessed. I've got these little books like Healing Foods and I love aromatherapy, so I like... Um, making sure that if I'm feeling a little bit sore in the back or mm. uh, if I've got a sore throat, I'll look in my little book and I'll wow. make myself a little tonic. Yeah. And I've got, in, in later years, like once I hit, like, my, like I'm in my early 40s now, but 35 on, that's when I started to really get into all that. Um, so having my shit together is having enough time in the day where I wake up and I can really be present when I cook. So I can enjoy yeah. prepping food and it's a gift to my body, you know. So, because to me, um, good nutrition, your body, you know, it really, if you've got to feel safe in your body in order to feel grounded and balanced. So to give your body good food and to be blessed enough and to be grateful enough to have the money to buy the food you want, mm. and, you know, to me, is, is I feel grateful for that, yeah. you know. Um, so having that time to yeah prep some food, even if it's food prepping and you freeze it, but feeling like you've it's a small win mm. that you know like you've just it's very grounded isn't yeah, it? Like made some being in the yeah. flow of yeah like good food. Yeah. Later on, like when I started to get into like holistic healing, like I love a good sound gong and sound baths, and sometimes I. I, you know, I haven't done it for a while, but I used to enjoy a good, like, silent disco or a static dance. Mm. But I've really got into, like, learning about the archetypal cycles of the feminine. And I really am a believer now that you, um, understanding a woman's kind of cycle through life, like mm. the seasons. So now, like, I, I was born on New Year's Day and I've always been a winter child. Wow. Like, yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> And there's a poem that I don't often read very often, and it's called Photosynthesize Me, and it's about my relationship with nature. And there's a line in it where I say, um, we met in the winter, do you remember? Um, the um, oh, release from the warm bud of my mother's womb, your your um, snow cape features consumed my blank canvas, and you taught me that even cold things are lovable. You know, and it's this idea that I was born into the winter, mm. and my... Oh, so I love the winter and I've come to understand that it's a it's really an important season for nesting down yeah. and and hibernating. I often my surname's Hale and I often call myself Hedgehog Hale <laughs> in the winter, right? But I really honour that now. Yeah. And I wouldn't have once. This is what you I'm fight against about. It, yeah, and now I I do sit myself down, like old Joe Dispenza says, and I do say to my body, stop, rest, yeah. sleep. You know, be warm. Yeah. Have that extra 30 minutes in bed. Try and read, because sometimes if I get really flighty, yeah. I don't read, and I've got all these lovely books that it's I want to read. It's the first thing to go, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So focus for me is is having my shit together. Yeah. Focus, um, having clear ideas, um, not achieving too much in a day, but having, as I said, small wins. Yeah. And one of those wins has to be looking after yourself a very good friend of mine who started out as a healer, a reflex, I'm a keen lover of reflexology, and it's the only thing for me that turns off my pituitary gland because I sometimes I 
you know, our, our pituitary glands can never say the word properly, but secretes a lot of, you can secrete a lot of energy and you can, o adrenaline, you can overproduce yeah. that adrenaline. And when I have reflexology, she literally can turn that tap off for me and I will just like completely go floppy wow. and I'll go home and sleep. And um, I, since, since kind of understanding that side of myself, and knowing when I need to rest with this woman, I devise like little mantras sometimes and little rituals that I do. So if I'm feeling tired or my legs are feeling tired, I'll massage my legs mm -hmm. and I'll with a really nice oil and I'll almost thank them. Thank you, legs, for carrying me. Yeah. You know, because there was a point point in life where I really didn't like my legs yeah. because they're quite heavy set for my shape. Um, so I had a bad relationship with them. And so even just like, or just like touching yourself and yeah. saying, oh... Oh, legs, you've carried me, haven't you, for so long. Yeah, you know, it sounds crazy, yeah. but I do. No, yeah. You know, I do. And so that's having my shit together. Yeah. Being present in my body. Yeah. Having clarity. Gratitude. So, gratitude. Yeah. So I can actually make my visions come true. And I, I've always believed in myself and I've always believed in what I believe. We all have a project mm -hmm. that is ourself. Mm -hmm. And I always, I've never given up, even in times when I had feelings of angst and anger and I had resentment towards my past I always knew that there was a better horizon and I always pushed towards it and I was always looking to self-develop to understand myself in the hope that I would eventually arrive on calmer shores and I have mm. and I think that that is having my shit together yeah. not giving up on living a, a more contented blissful existence mm. I love that. Yeah. Okay, so before the podcast, I asked you to think of an object that makes you feel like you've got your shit together. Yeah. Do you know what it is? Yeah, and yeah. I bought it. You brought it! And I don't want you to think it's a little plug. And it isn't a plug, <laughs> but I was going to leave you a copy so one of your readers, one, oh. of your, one of your readers, one of your listeners... Oh, my gosh. ...could, um, could tweet or could message you but oh it's my, my book that I've written in memory of my mum because yeah. I do feel like this signifies that I have my shit together. Oh, absolutely. And the reason yeah. being is I wrote Hurricane, it's called Hurricane Brain, and mm -hmm. I wrote it on the 10th anniversary of my mum's death. Yeah. And I, at, at, up to that point, I hadn't picked up a pen for eight years. I'd not written a thing. I'd stopped reading newspapers. I'd fallen out of love with a, a, a form of... Um, a form of expression that for many years was the bollocks to me, was yeah. like the, the kingpin, yeah. yeah. And I wrote from the age of, like, 10, yeah. you know. And, I, and at the time, I wasn't, like I said to you earlier, reading didn't come easy to me. I, I'm certain I could have dyslexia. I didn't, like, me and predictive text, we just don't get along. <laughs> like I'm always having to, like, correct something yeah. that I've said. And you could yeah. ask some of the poets out there and they'd laugh and go, <laughs> yeah, when you've texted me, it hasn't made sense. And I... Writing was the same, but I had the enthusiasm. I was like, I'll show you I can do it. You know, yeah. I was that kind of, I can be better, I will improve. And um, in my inner critic, I wanted to prove my inner critic wrong as well. And so I wrote poetry from a young age. I was obsessed with Michael Rosen's stuff. I was into all the gory, like, revolting rhymes, mm. if there was bogus, if there was poo, if there was, <laughs> if there was words that didn't make sense. But rhyme to me, I loved. And rhyme yeah. is what, how I learned to read. And I met Michael Rosen recently and I took a book along that I was gifted at the age of six called Quick, Let's Get Out of Here. And it helped me learn to read. And I asked him to sign it and I explained to him that 
um, he was the reason I learned to read, you know, and I, so the fact that I come from a Cockney background and I grew up hearing sound first, because we learned to read of ears first, right? Yeah. So Cockney rhythm, Cockney rhyme, then I loved rhyme, and then I obviously wanted to go into journalism, and, Mm. and, and I will be honest with you, I was fantastic at drawing out people's stories, but because I'd come from a Cockney background, my grammar wasn't great, and sometimes when I went into, when I went on to other newspapers, I was sometimes made to feel less of a writer because sometimes I made little errors. Mm. But I was still a great writer. Mm -hmm. But I just... There was sometimes in ways journalism wasn't creative enough for me, you know, and I'd always be jotted down different ideas. I had loads of notebooks everywhere. But I just fell out of love with it. And as soon as my mum passed, it's like... All I can describe it as is there was the there was the life before she died and there yeah. was the life after and I never allowed myself to connect with writing for years because it was a pleasurable thing and it's like I didn't deserve pleasure because she wasn't here to have pleasure. Yeah. And then one day I was training I was doing my I was doing my play therapy MA my training and we mm-hmm. we'd been reintroduced to um, journaling and when I was a kid I kept loads of diaries I used to keep a diary called Jude even had a name. <laughs> You know, and this course, it reintroduced us to journaling and really mm-hmm. that's diary keeping. Yeah. And I started to write again and off the back of that, my mum's anniversary was approaching and I wrote this book. I wrote it in three hours, Hurricane Brain. It's all in poetic verse. Oh, wow. And I, I tweaked it in part. Mm-hmm. I went to a couple of, like, critique workshops yeah. in Morphin Forest. A couple of authors said to me, it's great, but I reckon you should give it a bit more of a like beginning, middle and end storyline, it does have a beginning, middle yeah. and end, but it's told in poetic verse. And when I think about my spoken word and when I think about Michael Rosen and when I Rosen, when I think about revolting rhymes and the yeah. way I love poetry, I'm not surprised this is a poetic storybook. Mm. And it tells the story of a little boy called Keith who wakes up one morning to discover that his mum has gone and everyone's talking about grief. So he thinks grief is a person. So he gets his raincoat and his binoculars and he goes off to find grief so he can get his mum back. And it's the journey, it's all metaphors, and it's the journey of like the somatic experience that he goes through in his body and he doesn't understand what's going on, so he develops a hurricane in his brain because, you know, he's really angry. Yeah. So it really addresses, it really calls into question the anger and why kids need to express anger. And when I wrote it on the 10th anniversary, it allowed me to take the edge off the sadness of what she'd missed out on in my life, what she hadn't seen me achieve. And it took the edge off. And I really, at the time, all I knew is, as a kid, I always wanted to be an author. And I always wrote stories. And I thought, well, I'm going to try and publish this. And my, mm-hmm. um, my, one of my counselling colleagues said to me, you know, this is a really good what we call therapeutic stories, they're called psychoeducation books, where you address a topic that's difficult, but you do it in a way where it's told through a story. Yeah. And what I did is um, I did my research study in bereavement and I discovered that a lot of young offenders under the were bereaved under the age of 10, so 40% of young offenders are bereaved under the age of 10 and obviously a lot of people in prison are men so the reason I chose to make it a little boy is because I want boys to be able to feel like they can express their feelings when they lose something in life Mm. be it be it they be it the loss of a sibling that you know dies or be it the loss of a parent relationship that falls apart be it the loss of 
a toy that meant the world to them. Loss does impact us in many ways, or as in this case, the loss of a parent. Yeah. So, so I, so I, I, I turned it into a self-help book. I doubled it up as I put guidance at the back. Amazing. And there's ten activities you can do. That's so beautiful. Um, wow. Ten activities that you can do to support your child through grief. And I yeah. did a. I just thought to myself, I'm gonna. I'm, I believe in me. I'm gonna do this. This could help Definitely. someone. And and then I just kind of chucked my weight behind a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, you know, I um. I got a video ready. Yeah. I followed the formula of previous campaigns mm. that had managed to secure the money. Mm-hmm. And I just chucked myself into it. And when I was... The moment the campaign went live and the cockney in me just went, right, I've got to make this money, the drive again, yeah, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the hypo drive. <laughs> and um, and I did. And I ended up raising, like, just or just under 6K. And I asked oh for five. God, wow. And I had 40 days to do it. And, yeah. and it's just been printed. And a lot of the backers... Um, the main drivers were word of mouth, yeah. but Instagram and Facebook, Instagram yeah. number two, Facebook number three. Wow. And the main, you know, there's a lot of backers out there. Like this was due to be finished in around February, so it's mm-hmm. gone over. and it's, right. But it's finally turned up on my door, wow. 12 boxes printed. Oh, my gosh. And I'm about to get it ready to send out to the backers. How amazing. And so this this project, from beginning to end, I've transformed an idea yeah. into existence. This says to me... You've got your shit together, Absolutely. and and don't ever forget that you this Did this it? started as an idea, yeah. um, and it was a doodle in a sh- in a book where I was like drawing the hurricane. Oh my god! Um, and I found this incredible illustrator who yeah. lived in Georgia, and she illustrated it for me. And oh my gosh, you know, she, yeah, and she was very committed. And during the process, her both her one of her parents died during the process wow. of her making it, and wow. um, her fa- her mother got ill too. It's so, it so was... amazing because, like, I feel like often with young p- people and children, we're scared to have conversations and frank conversations yeah. about these overwhelming emotions yeah. because you don't want to, yeah, overwhelm them. Yeah. But actually, when the time comes that, like, tragedy strikes or yeah. something, yeah. it's so important that they're equipped yeah. with Yeah, most definitely. The there's language a, there's and... a little bit in yeah. here where I say near the end, um, like... There's a bit here where I say, um, months have passed now and Dad thinks I need to see a doctor for hearts to mend the broken parts. I live, eat, breathe this loss. Grief has become my boss. Inside, I'm hurting. Why can't anybody see? I've lost a piece of me. Mm. You know, and it's this idea that actually, um, you know, you need to be able to talk about your your hearts, the stories, the pain you carry in your heart. Yeah. And kids... They don't, kids cognitively develop at a different rate, develop them developmentally. So, for instance, if a child loses a parent young and they're eight, cognitively they'll be eight, but developmentally they may be eight, they may be six by the time they're ten because the bereavement has knocked their emotional age back. So wow. developmentally, you can be un, you can be performing in an age in a younger age bracket, wow. and so children often children more so look like they're coping, but it's just disassociation. They've just the overwhelm has made yeah. them go blank a bit, yeah. and they they're just kind of walking around. When people refer to it as like autopilot, it mm. is, and and it's recognizing it because you'll get people in schools that you know that will say, oh that child you know, has got autism or that child's in care and they really need help or that child's just lost their dad but he's coping so well. 
you know, and, the, and actually the child is not coping. They're yeah. desperately needing someone to explain a phenomenon, yeah. a life-death situation that's ha- that hasn't doesn't make sense to their 10-year-old yeah. brain. Yeah. And that's where books like this come in because storybooks are safe projection. So you can read this, you could read this book or any book to a child about anything, anxiety, suicide, depression, yeah. all those books are out there. And the child can ask questions in a safe in a safe relationship, yeah. like if it's your auntie or your mum or your yeah. your favourite TA or your teacher, and you can ask questions mm. and, and, and they will start to make sense that life and death is a normal part yeah. of life. And I think in schools we owe it to kids to in, introduce the life and death situation yeah. much more clearly yeah. to kids other than saying this is a living thing this is a yeah. non-living thing this is a plant yeah. this is an insect actually having a dialogue about our bodies yeah. and how sometimes they just do stop working yeah. you know and 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 giving children the benefit of the doubt that they can they have the capacity to understand yeah. that um and then you're kind of arming them with um you know and emotional intelligence from a younger age so when they are hit with difficulty they can navigate it a bit better mm. it's when... and also it's equipping everyone with the, with the language because actually kind of what you were saying before about when when your mum passed away and you noticed a lack of like yeah people yeah. reaching out to you like it's massive often yeah. even if you're a teacher and there's a child in your class whose parent Mm. Who loses their parent? Maybe the teacher feels tentative about not knowing how to well, and also approach it, the child yeah. with that because they don't want to upset them. Yeah, one hundred percent. And also, we constantly trigger each other. Yeah, you know, like in scenarios, it's common in the classroom. It happened to me sometimes. I've seen it happen where, mm. you know, a child will come in, and they will act in a way that will trigger an adult, and it will trigger the inner child of the adult. Yeah. And if that adult hasn't you know, process certain things in their life and that's their choice, they'll have a reactive reaction and they won't understand why. And so we go through life constantly, constantly being triggered. Yeah. You're constantly triggered. And so for people to have something where, yeah, they can approach little Tommy or they can approach, you know, Sebastian or whoever the Mm. child is, child A, child B, you know, and say, oh, look, you know, um, do you fancy reading this book with me? Um... It's about a boy who, you yeah. know, has a hurricane in his brain and he doesn't know what to do about yeah. it. Oh, poor, poor Keith, he must feel really, really lost and confused. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a very different dialogue yeah. than saying, oh, I heard your dad's die, I'm so sorry. Yeah. And so it creates um, a bridge, a platform yeah. for um, for conversation and also honest conversation. Mm-hmm. Children don't want you to lie. You yeah. know, children just want to know... Um, the truth of the matter, and sometimes yeah. you, as an adult, you have to feel okay to answer questions um, honestly, mm-hmm. you know, and, and know that the child deserves that. Really, yeah. I guess. So yeah, it is. Um, so where can people get that? Well, I'm not. That's where I've got my shit together, <laughs> but I've not quite got my yeah, shit yeah. together. So the the next couple of months is going to yeah. be sending out the copies to the backers right. which is there's about 250 backers okay great and then after that i'm going to put i'm going to aim to get it on amazon yeah 
and do like a KDP version so mm-hmm. it can be downloadable on Kindle, Amazing. hopefully, because that doesn't cost cost much to do. Yeah. And it would make sense that people can download for things like Kindles or iPhones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then also they can message me via my Instagram directly, yeah. which is obviously Curly Wordy Official. Yeah. And some people will know that I did have another account, but it got hacked, so I had to set up a new one, uh-huh. Curly Wordy Official. Um, and then I've got a website, curlywordy.com, yeah. and if they message me through there as well, I'd send it. But I will be at gigs Yes. in the coming, whatever whatever comes my way in the next year. Yeah. I'll always aim to take a few copies yeah, yeah. To, a gig, to some gigs with me with my little card reader. Yeah. And But, yeah, just reach out to me. And Amazing. also reach out to me if you've got, if you know anyone, a school, a yeah. hospice, a hospital, a library that would benefit because part of the campaign video was that if people backed more than two books i would donate a free copy to a local library or school and um so i've got about 70 copies to donate Mm -hmm. so if there's a school out there or a hospice or a fostering service or um, a library and that you think would benefit yeah just dm me and we'll make it happen amazing so yeah thank you for sharing that yeah time in your life where you felt like you really had your shit together that's open to interpretation isn't it <laughs> i felt like i had my shit together when when i started to look at my emotional self right. i think i think i'd been someone in life who growing up in the east end in the climate of the 80s and the 90s where men in your family weren't encouraged to talk about their feelings and women on the off like off the back of the era of Maggie Thatcher, if you like, there was a lot of women that were you know powering on. And my mum was very emotional, but my mum had her moments of being a bit cold, and my mum had her moments of being closed. And I guess life made her that way because she had to survive. But there was a time when I developed, you know, as we know, we all learn we're mini me's of our parents, mm. and I learned those skills, and I spent a lot of my early life, formative years, suppressing my feelings. And because I felt that was what I had to do to get through. And my body did that to get me through hardship. Some emotional upsets in my family that didn't feel safe at the time, I guess. Because your body will always respond to unsafe feelings. And it really wasn't until I went to university that I started to open up a bit. But then I medicated a bit with booze, Mm. you know, so I still didn't look at my feelings that much. (laughs) And then I medicated a lot with travelling and travelling. I became a real travel junkie. But I'd never been able to access much culture young. Like, there was a lot of culture in the East End on my doorstep, yeah. social culture, but there wasn't, like, I, we weren't privy to many holidays growing yeah. up. We went to a lot of seasides on the Essex coast and we went to a lot of caravans and, like, I didn't have a holiday, a proper holiday till I was 13. And my dad took me to, like, a proper Brits Abroad Tenerife resort um, which was hilarious. So I always had this obsession with South America and this uh-huh. obsession with Australia. So when I the first place I ever backpacked when I was twenty one was South America, and then I did end up living in Oz. So I, yeah. when I when I finally went off travelling, my relationship with nature started to unravel the masks, and it started to show me that I was safe to look at how I felt. Mm. And there's a line in my travel poem where I say. By now, you'd made me see that I needed to backpack a different map of my own. You know, and it's this idea that I had to backpack my emotional map. 
really it was when my mum got sick and passed, that was it for me. That was everything imploded. Everything that I'd put a lid on for years, pushing it down, pushing yeah. it down, pushing it down. Finally, it just went pop. Yeah. That Pandora's box. And a lot of people don't want to open that box because yeah. they fear the mess. Mm-hmm. They fear how messy it's going to get. But it didn't get messy. It was just constantly telling myself that I would be able to hold it and own it and be able to support myself at the time. And it was then when I went on, when I started to see that I had to look at my emotional self, that I'd done everything else in life and I'd achieved my career, I'd achieved my education, I'd achieved, I'd built my emotional, my, I'd built my educational self and my social self and I'd built my travelling self. I, but I had an issue with my emotional self and it was directly impacting my intimate relationships. And there was a reason why I was doing that because I was keeping myself safe. And then I went on a journey of therapy and I never thought, I was that kind of person that never thought I needed therapy. It's the best thing I ever did. Over 10 years, I had therapy with many different people. Mm -hmm. And the best therapy I had was with men because I didn't have that kind of relationship with my father. So I had two counsellors that, the counsellors that ended up being male. Yeah. And that's when I started to get my shit together. That's when I was in a room with men that could listen, that were of fatherly age, and they were holding space for me in a way that... No disrespect for my father, but my father's love language is not listening to my emotions. My my father has many love languages. DIY being one of them. (laughs) And fixing my car being another. Acts of service. Acts of service, yeah. Yeah. But at the time, there was still a bit of anger around him not being able to stand and be that emotional man. Yeah. And I spent a lot of years angry and I was knocking on the wrong door because we get angry and we, we want an answer, we want a sorry. But when I directed it away and put it into a more constructive avenue and seeked therapy with a male, it was the best thing I ever did. That's so interesting. And I, yeah, and it opened and it, I had epiphany moments and that's when I started to get my shit together, when I knew, when I started to align my all my other selves with my emotional self. Mm. And I could, I started to like my emotional self. Yeah. I started to see that she needed tenderness. I, I started to see that she needed tending to, you know, that the weeds needed raking away. And those weeds never go away, so they always, re, they always grow back. Yeah. But they're there to remind us, you know, what we've been through. But And then I started to hold space for myself more and be tender with myself. And then I started to kind of realign with the feminine more because I'd realised I'd operated a lot from my masculine because I had to because in my family home, I took on the more fatherly role once mm. my father had gone. Um, you know, um, there's a thing in counselling called pseudo-maturation. And often when a child is wounded young by any type of trauma or when a child, in my case, my family unit broke down, there was marital struggles and there was aspects of domestic violence, you mm. know. And when that broke down, often children, uh, you know, when when you see adult, when you see children, you think, God, they're really mature for their age. Yeah. It's often because childhood ends for a lot of children so, when there's early trauma or a traumatic experience and they step into what they call a pseudo-maturation process where they will often take on roles of the parenting. It's uncommon to meet children that cook a lot or to try and rescue their parents' emotions a lot. And that happens the world over. It doesn't Mm. mean that you're damaged, doesn't mean that you're broken. It just means that a part of your childhood was taken away a little bit and you had to step into a more adult role quite young. Yeah. And it does have its gains, but obviously it doesn't as well. And I stepped into the masculine young. You know, I'd say it wasn't until I started to really get back in touch with my feminine needs, my sensual needs, my intimate needs... That started to come to play when I started to really hold space for my emotions. 
And that's when I started to get my shit wow. together, yeah. So I would beckon anyone out that's there amazing. to never never run from your emotional self. Like, yeah. hold space for them and, yeah. and soothe yourself if you need to. Yeah. Like, hug yourself. Like, tell your... You know, like, there was this... There's a line. I've not used it in a poem yet. <laughs> but I wrote a little, like, doodle, like, amusing. Yeah. And there's a bit where I say... Um, I used to think telling the people I love the most the truth about myself was the hardest thing to do, but it's telling yourself. And when I was truthful with the child that carried me... I was finally able to carry her back. And it's this idea that all that inner child wants is for you to say, fuck me, you did go. Sorry if I'm not allowed to say oh, Fuck me, you did go. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you really did go through the shit. And, yeah. you know, like, oh, I'm so sorry that I wasn't, that you, no one was there to really take that on for you. Yeah. But, you know, so sorry, but look at how well you did. Yeah. You don't have to do that no more. You're yeah. all right now. Yeah. You know, so you're almost talking to that yeah. child and saying it's all right. Yeah. And it's a really, like, powerful thing to oh, do. And, yeah, and, I, and that came to bear for me during COVID when I was at home. I was still a teacher. I was having to do home learning. Mm. And I, I did this 30-day Jay Shetty live meditation thing. And I was going online every day. Jay Shetty's online stuff. Mm-hmm. And I did this inner child one. And he said to us, look, we're at a point, we're at a crisis. We're in a pandemic where so many people now are questioning what their purpose and passion oh, is. Yeah. I want you to do this meditation with me. And it was an inner child one where you went back to your family home. You embraced your younger self. Mm. And it was so vivid for me. Mm. And I went back to my home. And that home carried a lot for me, a lot of happy memory, but a lot of sad memory. And I went there and I greeted my little self and I said to her, you know, what what don't I do that I used to do that I loved and this which is what he asked us to ask. Mm. And 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 she said to me, You always had a notebook and pen and wrote what you saw and you don't do that no more. Wow. And really it was the, the start of poetry. But it was the start of her saying to me, like, you know, where has that part of you gone that loved writing? Yeah. You know, and again, so it started to bring my shit together. My, I started to bring into line this emotional self and this belief that actually this story that lives in me matters and I'm going to put it into words that I am comfortable with. Mm. It won't be for an article and mm. it might not be through a perfectly written grammatical grammatical book or whatever, or it won't be in an article that will be, you know, by a standard of a newspaper, it's going to be a piece of poetry. And I just started, once that feeling came to me, I started sharing the poems in my WhatsApp groups with my mates. Amazing. And that's when they were like, yeah. this shit's good, man. It's going before <laughs> some of it. Yeah, oh you know, God. so, yeah, long-winded answer. but Absolutely not. It's gorgeous. Yeah, thank you. Okay, you know. in opposition to that then, a time in your life where you felt like you really didn't have your shit together. Oddly, you'd like, you'd think you didn't have your shit together, like, once upon a time, I would have said it when my mum passed, but that's when I had to have my shit together. Yeah. I had to have it all sucked yeah. and shit together. I, I was so tall in a way. I mean, I wasn't free of having my shit together, but I had to be very, very... On top of it. On top of it. Yeah. So there was a... I think when I didn't have my shit together was when there's been many not shit together. Yeah. And it's been times when I've given myself away too easily to people that didn't deserve my energy and my time and my love. And... That's happened a lot for me in, in in the early part of Lou's life, you know. That happened in relationships because I didn't know my worth. Mm. I knew what I was... I, the, again, another line in a poem that mm-hmm. I haven't finished yet, but there's a, line, there's a thing where I say, I know what I'm worth, but I just can't feel it. So there was a part, you know, there was times in life, because I was... At, when I was younger, I fixed a lot. 
I had yeah. to fix a lot of my family for certain reasons. So then you take that forward in your relationships, and I became a bit of a fixer. Yeah, because that's where you get your worth. Yeah, from. and yeah. I did get my worth from knowing that I could be um, of of help to men. And I those relationships were all purposeful for me. They all helped me grow. Only one of them was not great. And I got myself out of that situation. Mm. But all of them did end up being projects in ways. And there was a point where I realised that it was there was always an imbalance. It, it never felt equal. It yeah. never felt like equal love. And I wanted something more dynamic. And that's when I didn't give up on myself. So there was times when I didn't have my shit together in relationships. But those relationships taught me what I wanted. Yeah. So I realised that it, that's not what I wanted. Yeah. So the times, yeah, I'd say relation. Some in some of my into relationships, I certainly didn't have my shit together because I was disconnecting myself from my wants, my needs, mm. and my emotions. Mm-hmm. So the more again that I connected, uh, when when I was trying to get my shit together, yeah. connecting with my emotional self, I'd realised. Um. So how certain relationships didn't serve me anymore, yeah. you know. And, yeah, I think that would be it, really. There yeah. was times at uni I didn't have my shit together because I had complete freedom and I'd left home and I wasn't... I'd left the family uni and I just wanted to be me and I didn't know what being me was because there were, I'd, I've, I definitely played a role at home yeah. where I wanted my... You know, mum to be proud of me, and my my sister had early troubles with mental health, and I, so I tried to be a very, very kind of you know. I tried to be the the sibling that would just power on and study mm. and achieve, and you know, I wanted mm-hmm. them to be proud of me, you know. And but there was times then when I never had my shit together, but I just didn't know how to ask. Yeah, with me, it's all deep stuff when I didn't have my shit together, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'd say in relationships, and it's and I realised because I used to give myself away too easily, and also. I'd stop doing the things I loved. Yeah. And I find that you do that in relationships. This is resonating so hard with me. Like, I find in a relationship, I can become so disconnected from myself. Yeah. And weirdly, like, when you go through heartbreak or stuff, you know, I might think that that's the time where I don't have my shit together, but mm. that's actually the time where I'm, like, gathering myself together mm. again and reconnecting with who I mm. am. Whereas, like, if I'm in a relationship that isn't serving me anymore, and I, I can stay in that for far, far too, too long. long. Yeah. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> I can say that for far too long because I'm like giving and I'm giving yeah. and I'm giving and I'm want and I think I equate being a good person or being a good partner with allowing them to have access to me. Yeah, yeah. And actually, when actually that comes with a price. Yeah, that has a currency and that has yeah. a high currency. But understanding what that currency is. Yeah. When it's not been fully instilled in you, and often I think it's like I was. I don't know if you know Gabor Mate. Obviously, many people do. Mm. He's an incredible writer on a, on trauma informed work. Yeah. And he his book recently, Myth of Normal, phenomenal piece of writing, seminal piece of work. Took me hours. I had to listen to it on audio because it's wow. a big. It's like a dictionary. Yeah, yeah. But he talks a lot about. Um, healing from a toxic culture because yeah. because when you think of your parents at the time they were only taught what the culture taught them yes and culture is toxic right so yeah. if your parents are taught have a stiff off a lip don't yeah, show yeah, emotion yeah. it's not they don't love you it's just that that's what they're taught in culture so yeah. when i look back my parents loved me they would have done anything for me right but they weren't great there wasn't a lot of emotional communication in my mm-hmm. house at all mm-hmm. and so i was always taught 
you were taught indirectly that expressing your emotions was weak yeah. or, or being that vulnerable wasn't great. Yeah. And so I squashed it. And I think that if you don't express your feelings young, yeah. you don't express your needs. And if you don't express your needs, you don't gain your worth. Definitely. And if you don't gain your worth, you give yourself away but, and think people have ac- should have access yeah. to you when actually they need to work for it. I think it's doubly entrenched within our society in terms of, like, gender as well. Mm. Like, I think girls are often taught to just be... to not be difficult yeah. and, like, to not rock the boat yeah. and to... that their needs are secondary to, like, a male's mm. needs. And I think Most that's... definitely, yeah. That's something Most that definitely. I've been really trying to unlearn within relationships as yeah. well. And so funny what, what you were saying about, like, therapy and stuff like that because I was having this conversation last night with a good friend. But how... Because I've had therapy and you can feel, like... You make you do all of this work and you take two steps forwards and then you'll find yourself re redoing the patterns again and get really yeah. annoyed at it's yourself for you it. Get, it's hard to change a pattern. Yeah. It's hard to change a pattern and I'd say that patience with unpatterning yeah. is really important. Patience, I'd say, is an incredible virtue yeah. to own for yourself. And we can often encourage others to be patient and we're so impatient with ourselves. Mm. But to unlearn a pattern is hard. But the fact that you recognise you're doing it means yeah. the change is pending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's how you've got to celebrate yourself yeah. when you're like, oh my God, look what I'm, I'm doing. doing. That thing again. Yeah, but yeah, that is progress. Yeah. And we all recognise, um, we can all recognise progress in ourselves yeah. when we see it. And yeah. I think that celebrate those small wins. And yeah. I've that's what I've tried to do as I've got older. Um, whilst trying to get my shit together yeah celebrate those small wins and and give thanks for even even when relationships have been shit and and maybe they didn't deserve you for as long as they had access to and they didn't you didn't deserve the way they treated you but give just give thanks for the lesson yeah it doesn't have to be given thanks to them but just give thanks for the learning that you were able to take from it so you've put so you've added value to yourself moving forward yeah you know, and just celebrate that, yeah. you know, and that can only be of good. Yeah. You know, and that then allows you to focus on the kind of positive forward thinking mm. as opposed to the kind of um, limited fixed beliefs yeah. that you, we, we're taught, you know, that mindset of, like, we're no good or all that stuff, yeah. you know. It will come. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. No. Okay. Three things that make you feel like shit. If I don't write, yeah. If I don't write, actually, and obviously because I only moved, you know, over a month ago, six mm, weeks ago, mm-hmm. I've not been writing much. I do yeah. voice note a lot. I've currently got about seven hundred voice notes in my phone. Oh my god! And it will just be things like like sometimes like what the I do. Lines. Well, yeah, for, for a laugh. Sometimes I like if I had a wine, I just pick a random one to listen to, and I'm like. <laughs> was I thinking oh there God. and it might be something like pebble devil devil do 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 I don't know whatever it is right? I might just be, yeah, I might be playing with the sound or and I'm like imagine if someone just found me yeah. um but yeah um and I, I mean I'll be honest once I found one that it was just me it was just me saying down the uh voice note for with pauses I was I just kept saying the word orgasm <laughs> and then I'd pause and then it'd be Orgasm. That, like, that is a poem. That's a poem. Yeah, <laughs> I think I must have been inspired by the vagina monologues or something. But, um, so yeah, if I don't write, I feel really shit. Yeah, and it was only reconnecting with it. And as I realized. said to you earlier, like an yeah. old friend, that I realised sometimes I need to write to think. In oh, the same way a dancer sure. might have to move to think, yeah. right? It's a process. Yeah. So like, yeah. And, I, and I understand how I feel better when I write. Mm-hmm. So not writing definitely makes me feel like shit. Yeah. 
if I don't eat well, like if I don't have mm, good food, mm-hmm. you know, I love a really good green leafy salad. Mm. You know, I love like, I'm the kind of person, I'm a bit, definitely a visual learner, and what I do is I keep old glass jars mm-hmm. and I wash them out, of course, and then if I cook up something or make a salad, I put it into the jar and I put it in my fridge. This is when I'm, when this is when I got yeah, my shit together. Yeah. So when I open the fridge, I see what I've got and then yeah. I know I'll eat it. That's good. Often, I, otherwise, things just go off at the yeah. back of the fridge. Yeah, yeah. So if I, I often feel shit if I don't eat well. Mm-hmm. If I don't eat well. And, um, yeah, feeling shit if I'm, if I just, you know, if I don't see my mates, if I don't yeah. have together time mm-hmm. with people. And it can be one-to-one, like yeah. in this capacity, yeah. just having a good old chin wag. Yeah. But chewing, putting the world to rights, yeah. putting chewing something out, mm-hmm. and having and and knowing it's with someone who is completely on your vibration and from your tribe. So you know, even if you get a bit juicy and gritty, they're not going to be offended mm-hmm. that you're going to agree with or disagree with something they're saying. Yeah, yeah. So a good conversation, you know, and just you know, if I, if I'm alone too long, mm-hmm. like sometimes, yeah, I can feel a bit shit, and it, but it can be balanced. I can make it go away by, you know doing a bit of Pilates or having a swim or, yeah, you know, reading, reading, reading a good yeah. podcast, listening to a podcast, reading a good podcast, <laughs> reading, a, reading, reading a good podcast, listening a good to podcast. a good book. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah, so all that really, like, mm. simple stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. simple stuff. And I, at the moment, yeah, I, you know, obviously I'm riding a wave of change and I'm hoping once it's all kind of a bit more settled... Yeah. I can go back to kind of yeah, seeing, seeing some mates again. And yeah. I've got nowhere for them to stay at the moment. Hey, Aunt. Hey. You do a great job in editing this podcast, might I say. If people like the podcast, what do they need to do? Like it. What else? Follow it on social media. And then what? They could share it with every single person they know. Thanks, Aunt. You can go back to your corner now. Bye. Three things that make you feel like the shit. When I feel listened to, mm-hmm. by anyone, that is, you know, by loved ones, by intimate loved ones, mm. by friends, when I feel understood, you know, like, um, so which is obviously why a platform like Spoken Word yeah. and a poetry platform yeah. is so great, because there were parts, you know, there was there were times in my life when my needs were suppressed by, by my family unit mm. and my words were silenced and I was made to feel like my words weren't important, that they didn't matter. And that's a very, very lonely process. And it's a very um, shameful process, actually, because you then you end up living with your own thoughts alone and you feel like they don't matter and they mm. don't count. Mm-hmm. And actually, they do count. And the beautifulness of spoken word and poetry, what it's gifted me, is this um, incredible platform where... My, it's made me understand that my words really do matter. Yeah. I'm shining a light on a story, on an era, on an area, on a subject matter, on a part of life that other people can resonate with. And yeah. that, to me, is brilliant. That, yeah, to me, yeah. fills my cup up no end. Yeah. You know, and um, so that makes me feel fantastic. It mm. makes me feel the shit, the bollocks, <laughs> as you say. We, we used to say the dog's bollocks. <laughs> bollocks! Um <laughs> What else makes me feel great? You know, um, lightheartedly, a fantastic orgasm. Oh, yeah. You know, love a good orgasm. So much so that you've recorded it in your uh, voice notes. Orgasm. Orgasm. 
gonna do that as a little segue. I'm on it like like a, a poetry thing. Just like start saying. Orgasm. Yeah, people be down. Just get everyone to start yeah. chanting it. Orgasm. <laughs> orgasm. 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 Have a little beat to it. So no, yeah, but it has to be for me. Like yeah. sex has always been quite sacred to me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I was very late in the birds and the bee game. And there was many reasons for that. Mm-hmm. But um, I was shy, you know, and I, um, I, 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 one of the poems, I don't know if you've heard, was about my birthmark process, because as a kid I had a birthmark and I had it lazy No, I've not heard this so I had a birthmark on my chin. Right. And it really affected my self-esteem for years. And so my belonging, my connection with my peers mm. in my estate wasn't phenomenal. And some people, some boys, made me feel unattractive. So I went into the birds and the bees a lot later. My relationship with the mirror was even less... Um, was weaker than you know the most teenagers because yeah. and we had and a lot of teenagers struggle with a mirror anyway and mm. I did have low self esteem because I saw myself how others saw me through the cherry chin and you know and and my mum put me on the NHS and I did lasered off so I went in the birds and bit to the bee, birds and bees quite late so I learned about sex quite late mm. and so when I've eventually learned about decent sensual you know, intimate sex, you know, and, like, loving touch. It doesn't have to be that it's with someone that you've had this long-term relationship with. You know, it could be something unconventional. It could be, you know, a long-term situationship Mm. or it could be, you know, a lover. It could be whoever, you know, I think whatever works for people, if it makes you feel good and it's uh, mutual and it's reciprocated and it's consensual, you know, do what makes you feel great. And I'd say sometimes when I've been in situations that haven't been fully conventional, like, you know, married kids, um, you know, always going out on dates and always seeing each other every week and stuff like that, that's when I've had great intimacy Yeah. because I've been able to be really honest about what I need. So that, that makes me feel great when yeah. I get touched well and when my body is... My when my erogenous zones are touched well, and and when I then have a great orgasm, it's kind of going the, back to what you were saying about being understood, though, as well, yeah. isn't it? It's like so even, yeah, even in your body with no yeah. words, yeah. yeah. So like your sex being understood, yeah. your your sexual need being understood, yeah. and be and because I guess that person who's making that effort to make you have a good pleasurable experience understands your body, honors honors your feminine mm. and also honors you as a woman yeah so that's yeah that's I fine sometimes that. when I, you know there's nothing like a lovely warm glow <laughs> after a really good intimate orgasm yeah. not you know where they've really listened to what you need yeah. so yeah it's number two uh-huh <laughs> number three what makes me do you know i love aromatherapy i love mm. a lovely bath with candles listening to really like amazing music like candles on Loads of aromatherapy, mood lighting. Yeah. That makes me feel great. You know, just, again, having a moment of pause, mm. a moment of um, meaningful boredom. Yeah. Where you just sit and you stop, and you sit yourself down in this rat race, like what we were talking about yeah. earlier, where London's always on the go and we can constantly, we can fall victim to that. Like we've got to be sucked into that overproduction. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that makes me feel great. You know, just pausing with myself for an evening or for a moment and just setting the scene where I'm acknowledging that I'm appreciating me, yeah. you know, and that makes me feel like I've got the shit, you know. Like and there that. are many other things, like nice holidays, yeah. you know. Simple. Cosy socks and, yeah, yeah, a good back scratch. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Love that. 
Okay, um, something that makes you lose your shit in a positive and a negative way. Like, I'm the kind of person that, as I said before, I love travelling, and I think that, but I'm someone that doesn't get excited until I'm there, standing in the middle of, like, a jungle or mm-hmm. standing in the, on a beach, and, and that kind of, that's when I kind of, something like that makes me lose my shit, right. where I'm like, I've arrived there, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I did it. <laughs> I wanted to go to I wanted to go to Peru and I'm here. Oh my god. On the Inca Trail. You, yeah, know, yeah. Like, you know, and I've done it, you know, yeah. and that to me is like I've listened to myself. Yeah. So I've listened to my I've listened to me, I've heard me. Yes. And that makes me lose my shit a I bit. I love that. What you said resonates. I love a good festival. I went to an incredible festival recently called Medicine Festival and it was Ooh. phenomenal. And the rhythm and the consciousness yes. that was there and like the high vibrations and everyone, the drumming and the sound work and the Oh, everything, the sage and the Palo Santo and all the oils and yeah. that. I could lose my shit over that. Yeah. A good scent. Yeah, I could lose good my scent. shit over <laughs> Sniffing out a good scent of sage. What's your fave scent? Oh, at the moment, I love sandalwood. Oh. Anything with an undertone of sandalwood. Very and nice. I've always loved patchouli. Oh. I love it. And for some reason, I love the smell of patchouli on a man. Mm. Um, and... Oh God, I, you know, so many. I love, I love jasmine. Oh yeah, I, I just love it. It seems it, I just lose. I can lose yeah, my shit over yeah, a yeah. really good scent. Isn't it funny how yeah. like I don't throughout the day I don't massively pay attention to what I smell, but if yeah. I smell how evocative it can be, yeah, like, your senses, yeah. What's so weird is since Layla, my new housemate, has moved in, she's got um, you know, the fairy uh, washing tablets for your mm. clothes, and. Like, she put a washing on the other day. I just walked in and I was, like, hit by the smell of my gran. Mm. Like, because that's what my gran used to use in Ireland. And I was suddenly just, like, taken oh, back there. Yeah. And so It's, like, yeah, stronger beautiful. than any scent yeah. in a way. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely lose my shit. I'm like, yeah. oh, what's this? <laughs> oh. You know, and I love, like, at the moment, there's, there's, a, there's a perfume brand called... I mean, everyone... A lot of people probably know it's Diptyque, and I love oh, yeah, their perfumes, yeah, yeah. but they're extortionately yeah. priced. Their candles, I've always had this theory, like I don't, I've always had a bad track record of dating men that don't really buy gifts. Mm. Right? I don't know what that is, mm-hmm. but I just don't, I'm not, I don't know if they see me as someone who's got what I need, and yeah. they don't buy me gifts, right? So to anyone out there who I end up dating, <laughs> my, my future equal dynamic lover, when you come into my <laughs> life, I'm going to, and you ask me what gift I want, I'm going to say, I love candles. Yeah. And I love Diptyque. Diptyque. And when you go to Diptyque and you go to the counter, you'll discover that their candles start at around £75. Oof. I'm worth it. <laughs> Please buy me one one day, future lover. A negative way, um, big ego. Mm-hmm. Big ego. And I think we all have ego. But we do, it's there. Yeah. The ego will always keep us in the familiar because the ego doesn't want us to take a chance on things, right? right? So your ego will always try and sabotage. That's what self-sabotage is. Mm-hmm. I've worked through a lot of ego stuff. It still happens sometimes, but because of the counselling stuff, it's not a it's not a hierarchical thing or anything, but I can recognise it now for myself. So then when I see it in other people, particularly if it's someone in authority, someone above you, someone who's a boss or someone yeah. who like doesn't understand like the woes of people that have it harder, mm-hmm. you know, like, and they just respond with complete, they, they, they respond from a place of wound or they react and it's all ego driven um, because they want power and they don't show empathy and they don't, they don't bring them their understanding round to, to put themselves in someone else's point of view or in yeah. someone else's shoes. I lose my shit over that. Yeah. I've got no time for people like that anymore. Yeah. Once upon a time, I would have tolerated people like that I'd have been around them I would have wasted time an evening mm-hmm. where now and if I'm somewhere like that and I really won't I'm not vibing I just I'll go home 
Mm. Well, I'll just remove myself from yeah. the situation. I don't... I'll find people that I do want to be around. But I just... Yeah, I... I arrogance. Yeah. Overproduction of arrogance, of self-entitled arrogance and, and you know, not understanding, again, not to quote um, all my poems, but, you know, I, my poems are my story. And yeah. the one about my mum where I say, you know... Um, never judge a book by its cover. You don't, you know, the half of it. You know, um, you often told me to never judge a book by its cover. You might not know the half of it. The story inside distinguishes the fighter from the lover. So you don't judge. Judge mental people, and we all judge. Mm-hmm. We're all prejudiced in ways, but we pull ourselves like you. You were saying earlier about like going, oh my god, I'm creating that pattern again. Yeah. There's many sides to prejudice. There's many sides to judgment. None of us are free of it. But when you are constantly committing to self awareness. And when you're constantly committing to self-awareness growth, if you find yourself being judgmental about anything, it might be something really trivial, like someone's shoes. Mm. You know, it might be about someone's coat. It might be about someone's um, weight gain. It might be about someone's hair colour, yeah. right? Uh, you know, but regardless, we can all do it. Yeah. But you pull yourself into line, right? You know, and I, you owe yourself that. You owe yeah. yourself that to question why you're doing it. But when people don't, None of us are free of judgment, I'd no. say, and we can. We all have to keep ourselves in line. Definitely. A moment that you found some shit out about yourself. I was in a re- again going back to relationships. I guess I was living in Australia. Mm-hmm. I was in a lovely beach town, working on a boat that went to the Barrier Reef, and um, I'd always wanted to learn to scuba dive, and I signed myself up to learn to sail and scuba dive, and I started to really understand that I had quite a lot of phobia quite a lot of anxiety around fear of drowning and fear of sharks and fear of boats crashing and Mm -hmm. fears of not having any oxygen if I was underwater and the tank malfunctioned and it was always this kind of catastrophizing a bit and I'd realized again I'd learned it a lot from my early childhood where my general belief is that my parents watched far too much crime watch right and they used to catastrophize a lot yeah my sister catastrophized a lot when we were young and I found it suffocating and I had to just get... Yeah. When I went, when I kind of went to uni, I was like, oh, I'm free. Yeah. And I really... So when I went and lived in Oz, I really pushed my... I really pushed my comfort zone. And it was through understanding those phobias that I pushed my comfort zone. Wow. And I've, I've had to overcome a lot, a lot of fear, you know. And I think through travelling, I was able to do that and through that kind of personal development. So, yeah, I was going to talk about another relationship, but I realised it didn't warrant the airtime. Yeah. Okay, shittest piece of advice you've received? Worst advice would be, like... I don't know if it's advice or it's a statement, but sometimes when people... Like, I am a believer in karma. Mm-hmm. Although, oddly, when my mum died, I really trashed that idea and I was angry at God, whoever God was. Yeah, and yeah. I was angry at fucking karma. Karma don't exist. Yeah. That would have happened. And a lot of people that bereave go through that as, as a stage of yeah. grief. But I do believe in karmic points and I do believe in giving good and getting good back and what you put out to the universe and is what you attract. And so, I, But I sometimes believe that idea of, you know, everything happens for a reason, it has a tinge of not truth. Yeah. And that idea of like, when, even when, when people say to you, even when bad stuff really happens to you, you know, it was deserved or it was, well, no, it wasn't. Or There's a point, there's learning. Like, yes. I, like I've said earlier, I've learnt from pain and everything I've been through, mm. I've taken learning from. You don't lose, you learn. 
And that's a really old Buddhist um, proverb, and it's true. But I don't believe that you call forth badness. No. I don't believe... And when people say, you know... I think especially when you live in the world that we're living in at the moment, I don't know how you can reckon that. Mm. Because that would be to say that some people are deserving of the horrors that, you know... On, like, an individual path sense... And it's so there's nice something, idea, I don't know if that's the advice. Yeah, but when people kind of rehash that idea of yeah. everything happens for a reason, yes, it does in ways, in parts, we attract what we give out. And, yeah. But actually, some shit, some shit stuff just happens because it's shit. Yeah. And it wasn't, I didn't attract it. Yeah. And I didn't deserve it. Um, but you can learn from it. Yeah. And you owe yourself to rise above it and learn. Um, but actually, something did just bring to mind. My dad used to say a saying, which is, don't do as I do, do as I say. And mm-hmm. I think that's shit advice. <laughs> because some of the things my dad said were shit. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Dad, but yeah. you know that to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the advice hasn't been great. Yeah. And I've learnt from not doing. Yeah. You know, I've like if, the, if someone gave me a bit yeah. of bad, bad advice, I'd go, oh, no. Yeah. And then I'd do the opposite, yeah, you know. Yeah. So... But that something will come to me after we've finished recording, yeah, and I'll go, "Oh does. my god!" Always does. That's like so the best advice, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. That was so the worst advice, mm. even. Shit, you wish you'd known sooner. That you can't flog a dead horse. So when you're with someone mm. and you're trying to make them love you, yeah, it really isn't you. It is them. It's the stuff that they've got going on that they've not processed, and you can leave a situation peacefully. I wish I'd have known my worth younger. Yeah. You know, because, and I guess that idea of youth is wasted on the young. A lot of people go through self-worth challenges. I wish I would have realised that my needs were so much more important than anyone else's. Yeah. And I and I would have walked away from situations much sooner in life because I always did kind of hang on and, and it served what it was. But, yeah, I wish I'd have got my shit together sooner in terms of self-worth. Yeah. And knowing my needs were just as important and I, I was allowed to take up space to voice them. Yeah. But I, what I would say to people is the fact that you do realise that is the most important thing. So it doesn't matter if you're 30, 40, 50 yeah. or 60 and you realise it. If you've realised it, give yourself a pat on the back, yeah. celebrate yourself and move forward. You've got that. Yeah, you've got yeah. your shit together regardless of when it was. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Okay, we're at the point of a shit shot. A shit shot. So that's the photo that to the outside eye looked like you had your shit together, but at the actual time you didn't. Okay. Yeah. It was a really smiley one. It's one that I've used for a couple of flyers. Yeah. I'm leaning against the wall. I'm really smiling. I look like I'm in the, like, prime of everything, really happy. And I was, in that moment, happy. But in the background, I had a lot going on and I was... I was grappling with having, you know, in in 2017, I decided I wanted to quit teaching. I quit this year. So for five years, I've shouldered a job that, like I said, was just paying the bank. And I was unhappy. That was really draining me, Mm -hmm. really weighing me down. I felt like I was becoming a body robot. Um, so that was in the background mm. and I didn't have my shit together over that. I was feeling the ego was really playing out its self-sabotage of say you leave, say you fail, say yeah. you leave London and say you do this and this all goes to shit. And I'd go, no, no, I've got this. Yeah. You know, and I'd, I'd talk back to the ego, you know. So that was really playing in the background for me. I was in a huge, like at a huge crossroads of, you know, this career for 10 years has held me, but I can no longer do it. Mm. Um, And I knew that I would have to leave the city that I really love, you know, in order to have safe passage into another part, a a new new part of me. 
Um, so yeah, that was the wow. that was the shit shot. But it's a nice picture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I look really like <laughs> I look fire. Yeah, but <laughs> I, look, I look like fire in it, you know. And I do feel like in that moment, I yeah. found. I found present moment happiness, yeah. but there was just a lot of shit going yeah, on in the background, yeah. right. and it was a real crossroad pathways yeah. moment. Yeah, you know. Cool. So yeah, yeah. Okay, well, Lou, aka Curly Wordy. Yeah. Have you got your shit together? Have I got my shit together? To be confirmed. <laughs> no, I have. Um, yeah. Incoming, incoming. incoming. Um, pending. I'm, I'm pending. Yeah, it's yeah. en route. I know where I want to be and what I want to do, mm-hmm. and the shit is slowly coming together. Yeah, I feel like it's like a how long is a piece of string? It's like mm. a shit string, isn't it? <laughs> it's like the shit the the shit shot and the shit the shit string is never short. <laughs> right? It's like if you you know like if you draw the short straw. Yeah, yeah. But if you drew the shit straw, it'd be the really long one, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So we know that to get your shit together is yeah. a long old journey. Yeah. Right. And so have we ever got our shit together? Uh-huh. So it's a journey, mm. but I feel like I'm. I'm on route to like living more authentically me. Yeah. Realigning back with the feminine Lou and the Lou that had these aspirations that were to do with creativity and writing and yeah. creating and co-creating and um, just because you, you know just because I haven't done it doesn't mean I can't and just because I haven't done playwright training doesn't mean I can't try and write a play or yeah. you know and I just have to get the guidance on it. So just yeah, I'm walking the right shit path. Mm-hmm. You've got the shit shit path. You've got the shit together path. <laughs> and I'm on the shit together path okay yeah it's good to know um well thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you it's been great it's been gorgeous yeah thank you curly wordy the road to the brains we live in the road to the brains we live in are paved with so much potential body verse corridors of doors housing the visions of the people we could become But in order to create ourselves, invent ourselves, empower ourselves, we need to read ourselves and stop telling ourselves that feelings don't matter. The world around us fires and wires the shapes and contours of our inner worlds. Feelings are meant to be felt. Feelers things happen, not stored away for it to manifest in a different way. They need to meet the light of day. Long before we talk, we feel Because we think in feelings first, as babies, our body tracks emotions and maps our preverbal verse, limb upon limb connected to the limbic cause. Emotions are the food of the body. So I ask you, what really defines intelligence? A boy who never cries, punching above his weight in maths, but evaporates under the pressure. A girl who knows the Harry Potter books inside out, but can't read her own, ask for help, nor express her terror. What really is the true measure? Because when all is said and done and young people go off into the unknown seeking sunsets with the skill sets we gifted them, will they hold their own? Emotional intelligence paves the way with relevance, unlocks well-being, creativity, self-care, relationships, kindness, awareness and empathy. Surely that should hold the highest currency. Mind and body were only ever meant to be friends, but if we block what we feel, those butterflies in our tummy, roadblocks in our throat and car alarm chests can only cause a lot of unrest. Brain in body's body, body binds to brain, stems have to be sodded from the inside to hold up a flourishing flower. Ah, We all need Maslow before we can truly bloom, so we can continue the mystery and ask the questions of who am I not to be. A seed of good soil is in all of us, so read the book in you. Caress its inner pages and review it well. Because dreams know no bookends, but feelings, you know, they need to feel the sunlight too. So, create your own proud, 
stand up, get active, get outdoors, get creative, drink down that air, steady your roots, dust off your petals, reroute if you have to, whatever works for you, just do, but never ever give up on the project that is you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. This podcast is produced by Ant Hickman. The artwork is produced by Tim Saunders and the photography is by Patch Bell. A massive thank you to Cassia for letting us use their song Slow. See you on the next episode of Have You Got Your Shit Together? Now and then I'm just a little bit low I always try to lose my mind in a conversation with you 